0: And so our sermon text this morning is in Genesis, starting at chapter 29, verse 31, Genesis 29, 31, and reading through to Genesis chapter 30, verse 24. Genesis 29, 31 to chapter 30, verse 24. Before we read that, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do ask that you would now bless your word to us. We pray, Father, that we would be given ears that hear, eyes that see, and hearts that are understanding and obedient. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 29, 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant Bilhar. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife and Jacob went in to her and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honour me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Amen. May God bless his word to us. Well, what a messy narrative. If um, you wanted to call it something, it's a mess. It's a, it's a family mess. It's um, actually in some ways quite unpleasant. And um, you'd have to say that uh, in some ways, some people in the story seem to reach the depths. They seem to get as low as they're going to go. But in the midst of the mess... In the midst of this um, family that is at war, I mean, you've got a bidding competition going here. You do this, I do that. You've done that, I do that. I've done that, you've done this. I'll add to it another. On and on and on it goes. In the midst of this um, family competition, which is actually in some ways unpleasant. I'll be honest, it's unpleasant. Um, God is blessing Jacob. God is still fulfilling the promises he made to Abraham. Remember, the offspring of Abraham were to become a, knight, a mighty nation that was to inherit the promised land of Canaan. Well, if you're going to become a mighty nation and you're going to inherit the promised land of Canaan, you need numbers, you need people to fill that land. And so the stream, which was very narrow, you know, you'd almost call it an, an intermittent stream that only flows when it rains. Abraham had only one son who was the son by the promise. The other son, God disowned. Isaac had two sons, but only one son was according to um, the grace of God, the son who would inherit the promise. The other son was disowned. Well, now we have Jacob. And by the end of this passage, Jacob has 12 sons. The 12 tribes of Israel. They stand at the heads themselves of nations, these 12 sons. God uses even sinners, even sinners and even the sin of sinners to accomplish his purposes. It's not that God is actually giving permission that people should sin, but God is using what comes to hand and what comes to hand when you're dealing with humanity is sinners. It is sinners. It's good to pursue righteousness. It's good to pursue holiness. But um, I say to anyone here who is in Christ, Do not think that your weakness and your stumblings disqualify you from service. God uses the people that come to hand. God uses the people whom he calls. God uses his own elect. Pursue righteousness, pursue holiness, but do not think that your sins make you unsuited to the service of God. On a level they do, but the reality is by the power of God's Holy Spirit, this shall be overcome and you shall be used. That's what the scriptures tell us. What do we got here? Well, I want to think first of all of Jacob himself. Jacob himself. He's not cast in a very pleasant light here. The portrait of Jacob here is, is not of what you might call a Decent and respectable man. What do I mean? Well, think of it. He's married to two sisters. One of them he's just crazy in love with, Rachel, Rachel the knockout, Rachel who is beautiful in form and appearance. The other, apparently, appears as according to the scriptures to um, be somewhat um, not so attractive. I I think that um, where it says that um, Leah has delicate eyes, it's basically saying that was her best feature, you know. And uh, last time we were looking in the book of Genesis, I said, you know, for a younger man, you know, if you're trying to set him up with a date and um, he says, well, what's this girl like? And you say she's got nice eyes. It's very likely he won't be that interested because, um, you know, he's not really looking for a girl with nice eyes. That's for a younger man. Just as a general comment, we've got Rachel and Leah married to Jacob in a cutthroat competition for Jacob's affections. You sort of you should think back a little bit to Isaac. Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. And he was basically allowing them to compete for the blessings And in the end, he decided that even apart from the providence of God, he was going to lay the blessing on Esau and said to Esau, go on out, go hunting, find some of my favourite food, cook me up a feast and when I've eaten the feast, I'll be in a good mood and I'll lay the blessing on you. And Jacob is sort of playing a similar game, but with more people. Two wives, the servants of those wives, he's at the head of a harem. They're competing for his affections and he's allowing it to happen. Think of what we read in First Corinthians chapter 7 where it spoke about the man having authority over his wife's body and then it turned it around immediately. Just, you know, in case you find that um, offensive, it immediately said, and the wife has authority over her husband's body. Think of this situation. Think of this family and think of this marriage. Well, Jacob is certainly exercising authority over the women in his household. But in this polygamous marriage type situation, what opportunity does a woman have to exercise authority over the body of her husband? And the answer is the poor woman has no opportunity to exercise authority over the body of her husband. That's, I believe, one of the reasons why the New Testament stresses that a man entrusted with leadership in the church is to be the husband of one wife. That husband wife combination is mutually sanctifying. In other words, each has the possession of each other. But here, none of these women exercise authority over Jacob. It's impossible. And so they're competing, they're, in a way, getting down in the dirt. Look at the um, introduction, if you will, to the passage we're studying. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Now, I can tell you the commentators argue about that. Do they just mean when the Lord saw that Leah was not Jacob's favourite? When the Lord saw that Jacob was still, uh, as it were, crushing upon Rachel, obsessed with Rachel. Or do they mean that Jacob actually disliked Leah? I mean, remember he worked seven years for the girl he didn't want, and uh, basically in the dark of night, with a few celebratory wines in his in his belly, he was fooled into marrying the girl that he didn't work seven years for. I kind of think there's we're getting we're looking at some kind of resentment here. Um, Perhaps he feels that he's trapped with this girl and there's nothing he can do about it now. The Lord saw that Leah was hated and the Lord opened her womb. Leah, knowing that she was not the favourite, the text tells us, was desperate to receive the loving affection of her husband. You're kind of getting the impression that every now and then he went to her tent, and we'll leave it at that, I'm sure you understand what I'm getting at. You're kind of getting the impression that every now and then he went to her tent so as to say he had done his duty. But apart from that, he didn't want to know her. Apart from that, he didn't really talk to her. Apart from that, he didn't share meals with her, share fellowship with her, whatever. Every now and then, she got doled out just a little bit of husbandly affection. That's the impression you're getting. But it turns out that Leah, though she was not the most attractive of the sisters, it turns out that Leah is the baby-making machine. She's the one that conceives easily and apparently gives birth almost just as easily. And so she keeps bringing Jacob sons. And look at the things that she says. I mean, we, we could just look at the names that she gives to her sons. Every name has a particular meaning. Um, but basically, she gets her first son. The Lord has looked upon my affliction. Now my husband will love me. She has another son. The Lord has heard that I am hated and he's given me this son also. And then she has another son. This time, my husband will be attached to me because I've given him three sons. You know, her complaint is I'm getting second-rate treatment, but according to any way that you want to measure the marriage relationship, I'm the first-rate wife. I'm the older sister. I'm the first one he married. I'm the first-rate wife. I'm the one that keeps bringing him children. And, you know, just I want to put this kind of bluntly. In that day, the reason you got married was to have children. You wanted to raise up children to inherit the things that you were working for. You didn't get married because it made you complete. You didn't get married because you wanted a really nice wedding. You got married because you wanted to have a family. Leah says, I'm raising up these children. I'm giving my husband all he wants. By any way that you can measure it, I should be number one. Often it's in our wanting something. It's in our lack of something. It's in our desperate need for something that God is actually doing a work of grace in us. Because, you know, it's not actually sinful for Leah to want the affection of her husband. Even in a polygamous marriage. It's not actually sinful for her to want this man to talk to her. To treat her with respect, it's not sinful for her to want to have fellowship with her husband. She desperately wants this and she's not getting this, even though she's having sons. She conceives again her fourth child. She has a son. She calls him Judah, which means praise. It seems to indicate that she's come to the point now in her walk as a child of God where she's no longer looking to Jacob for what she needs. She's realising that what I need, I get from God. I'm praising God because he's given me another son. I'm praising God because he's given me that which I needed. And so Leah in her desperation was being built up in her faith. And then chapter 30, verse 1, well, I'm sure that this would be in a way um, possibly the first time ever. Something new for Rachel. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied or was jealous of her sister. (laughs) You know, Rachel the knockout, Rachel the beauty queen, Rachel the one who could uh, wrap up a man's heart, Rachel the one to whom Jacob was uh, in love in in in, a, in an obsessive way. We, we've, we've talked of Jacob before. Remember, he's a man who is capable of obsessive love. Now she's jealous of Leah. You know, finally, Leah's got something that Rachel wants. Leah's got children. Jacob gets a bit of payback here for his, um, what I would call, ungodly management of his household he gets into to pay it turns out that what he's doing is he's festering and brewing trouble and this beautiful girl that he's just so desperately in love with well you know i'll, I'll how can I put this um when you've um, when you are desperately in love with a girl who is somewhat or a little self-centered and she's beautiful and she knows that she's highly desirable etc cetera, etc cetera. well there are times when that girl can sort of spit poison back in your face you know she she loses it she gets angry at you she tells you off she said to jacob give me children or i shall die Now, notice, God is using Leah's lack of husbandly affection to draw Leah into a closer walk with himself. With regards to Rachel, her lack of children is basically driving her at this moment into herself. I'd rather be dead than be barren. Give me children or I shall die. I'd rather die. You know what, Jacob? I don't care that I'm your number one favourite. I don't care that you come to my tent 19 times out of 20 or whatever the number might be. I don't care that you spoil me with the best portions. I don't care that you're obsessed with me, man. After all, I am a woman and the reason that a man and a woman get married is to raise up children and at this moment I'm raising up no children and I will have nothing if I die. I might as well die now. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who is withheld from you, the fruit of the womb? You get a snappish, uh, you, get a, you get someone um, angry, or if you speak angrily into someone's face, well, you can expect them to snap back at you. And Jacob snaps back and he actually points her in the right direction in his anger. Am I God? What's he saying to her? Where's the solution to your problem, my beautiful wife? Who can solve this problem? Because I'm telling you now I can't. Only God can solve your problem. Am I God? Or am I in the place of God? And the reason you've not had children is that God has not given them to you. So ultimately, whether he 's spoken in anger, even though he 's spoken in anger he's basically told her you'd better you'd better get um into the habit of talking to God about this you'd better start going to the right person with your problems, and the right person to go to is God himself. Rachel, you need to learn to pray, and you need to learn to pray with some desperation all your life. you think you've had all you wanted well. God has not given you this thing because at this moment, your relationship with God is not what it ought to be. You need to learn to pray. Rachel then turns aside or turns aside, I should say, from the holy way or Rachel then comes up with an alternative. What if I give you my servant Bilhah? And literally she says, and she raises up children upon my knee. That's what she literally says. And it's an expression that basically means if my servant has sons, I will count them as my own. What if I give you Bilhah, Bilhah conceives, and she gives you sons, I'll count them as my own. Now what should Jacob have said? Let's be honest. What should Jacob have said? I'm already sleeping with two girls and it seems to be causing nothing but trouble. Why should I start with three? But as I said, that God is dealing with sinners. And Jacob apparently feels that wouldn't it be good? I'll have a third wife. Thank you very much. Sure thing. Vilhar conceives. And she bears a son. Rachel counts the son as her own. Look at verse six of chapter 30. God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. So she's counting this son as being hers by gift from God. And she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said with mighty wrestlings, with mighty strugglings, with the wrestlings of God. I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed, so she calls his name Naphtali. See, who this is competition. I'm in competition with Leah. Leah, the baby-making machine. I'm the good-looking machine. The baby-making machine keeps having the babies. I'm not having the babies. I'm at war with my own sister. War within the household. Verse 9, Leah sees that she has ceased bearing children, and it doesn't say it, but she's also seen that uh, Rachel has given the servant to Jacob, and Jacob was quite happy with that arrangement. And Leah decides, well, look, I'm in front, I've already got four sons of my own. Rachel has come up with two sons by a maidservant. I better stay out in front. You know, if you want to win the race, it's best to be in front. I'll I'll give Jacob the maid I'll give Jacob my maidservant and get a few more sons, and I'm well out in front. I, I keep I I stay out in front of the pack. We call it one-upmanship. Maybe we could call this one one one-up womanship. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, good fortune has come. Once again, Zilpah bears Jacob a son, and she says, happy am I, for women shall call me happy. So she called his name Asher. There you go. Jacob's now got four wives. He's got children from three of them. He's still got Rachel with no children. Now we get to what I actually think is, in a way, the lowest part of the story. This is the least pleasant part of the story. We'll read it and then I'll explain it to you. Verse 14, in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Okay, what's what's going on here? All right, this plant called mandrakes, I had to do a bit of reading up about this. This plant called mandrakes, it was considered to be something of an aphrodisiac. It was also considered to be something that increased fertility. When eaten, prepared in a certain way, it also brought upon the person that consumed it Something a little bit like a head spin, something a little bit like drunkenness. So the mandrakes, if you want to think of it this way, putting it in sort of a modern term, the mandrakes are the party drugs. And Reuben out in the field has found some mandrakes. And Reuben, the son, he's already in competition. You see, all of these people are in competition Reuben, the son, thinks to himself, I can give mum a step up. I've found some party drugs and if I take them and give them to mum, mum can party with Jacob tonight because we all know that dad loves a bit of a party. And mum can get dad back in the tent and maybe our family can get further out in front of Rachel's side of the family. You know, is, is this a healthy way for a son to be thinking of his mum and his dad? Is this a healthy way for a family to be thinking of interfamily relationships? I don't think it's any coincidence that later on in the book of Genesis, Reuben sins terribly by his father by going into one of his father's wives. And so he takes the mandrakes home to his mum. Look, mum, you can party with dad tonight. And she says, what a great idea. But Rachel hears about it and is immediately jealous. You know, here's Rachel. All right. Her servant girl had a couple of babies and she's claimed those babies of her own, as her own. But she would still really love herself to have a baby. And culturally, according to the. The the wisdom of the day; these mandrakes were not only an aphrodisiac, but they were increased. They they increased fertility. You know this this, um, this supposed love drug that the mandrakes were supposed to be. What's her thinking? It's not fair. That's not fair. Leah's already got babies. Why should she have the love drug? I'm the one that needs the attention of Jacob. The mandrakes should be mine. I'm the one that hasn't had a child yet. And so off she goes to her sister. Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. It's not fair. Why should you have all the fun? And then the bitterness in Leah's reply, verse 15. Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? I thought you had everything you wanted, Rachel. You know, Jacob, he's still in love with you. You haven't had any kids yet. You're the best looking woman in the camp. Why should I give them to you? Rachel comes back. Well, Jacob doesn't come to your tent very often. Give me the mandrakes and I'll close my tent for the night and he can come to your tent and I'll use the mandrakes later. Once again, I ask you the question, is this a happy, healthy household? (laughs) Is this the way things ought to be? And the answer is obviously no. No. Two sisters. Basically selling themselves for their husband's affection that's not the way a marriage ought to be is it you know husbands submitting to wives wives submitting to husbands exclusive and mutual friendship the the deepest levels of trust you know it's not that God actually hates a husband and a wife enjoying their sexual relationship I don't want you to think that that's what I'm saying God God blesses a husband and wife and one of the blessings is that you get the mutually satisfying aspect of our relationship which is our sexual relationship. God's not against a husband and a wife closing the bedroom door for the night and enjoying themselves behind the bedroom door so to speak. He's got nothing against it. You know if if you read the Song of Solomon and if you understand it for what it is and I'm not talking about how it might be interpreted there's there's all sorts of debates about how it might be interpreted. Is it Is it um, illustrative of the relationship between Christ and his church and other things like that? It probably is, to be honest, because it's in the Bible. But at at the ground level, at the base level, the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs, what it is, is it is a sensual love poem and it celebrates the joy of the sexual union blessed by God. That's what it is at the ground level. God's not against a husband and his wife enjoying their relationship to the full. But it's not a good thing when two sisters are fighting and arguing for a man's affections. So Rachel does a trade. I'll close my tent. I won't let Jacob in. I'll send him to your tent. If he comes my way, he can go to you. And so Leah, look at what she says to her husband. She races out to her husband that evening when he comes in from the field. Verse 16, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. I bought you. I bought you for the night. I've purchased your affections. I've purchased your attention. I traded for you. I bartered for you. I've got a contract with Leah. I mean, I'm sorry, I've got a contract with Rachel. You're mine and you can't escape me. Once again, is this the way that a marriage relationship ought to be conducted? And the answer is obviously no. But this is the way it's done. And so I don't know what, how Jacob saw this, whether he was bemused or surprised or, you know, as he thought about it, he thought, well, you know, my favourite Rachel, she's now got the mandrakes and... Tomorrow night or the night after, whenever it might be, we'll, we'll party then. I'll go to Leah. Whatever. He goes into Leah and it turns out that Leah didn't really need the mandrakes for the purpose of um, fertility or conception. She conceives. She conceives and bears Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Verse 19, and Leah conceived again. So Jacob has now started to visit Leah a little more often and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then she said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honour me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Finally, down at verse 22. Poor old Rachel. Rachel, the knockout. Rachel, her husband's favourite, Rachel, whom Jacob was prepared to work 14 years of his life just to be with her. The beautiful Rachel, who desperately wanted to have a child of her own and did not conceive. Well, remember Jacob snapped at her and said to Rachel, am I in the place of God? In other words, if you've got a problem like that, the only person who can solve it is God himself. You'd better learn to pray. Well, verse 22, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. The beautiful girl who was infertile is now suddenly, according to the providence and the will of God, fertile. And once again, you have this pattern whereby someone in desperate need is turned by God to himself and learns to grow in faith. Remember, what was Leah's desperate need? Her desperate need was the love of her husband, which she was not receiving. And in the end, she realised that if I have the love of God, that is enough for me. Well, Rachel's desperate need was not the love of her husband. It was to give her husband children. It was to fulfil what she saw as her purpose in life. Well, she goes to God with her desperate need and in prayer and God gives her a son and she calls his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. May he add. Joseph sounds like may he add. And so we're almost all the way through. There's one more son to come. Rachel will have one more son whose name is Benjamin. And then we'll have the full 12 tribes of Israel. What do we get from these things? What do we take from these things? What do we learn from these things? Well, to me, the first point is obvious. God fulfills his promises. That which God has promised will come to pass. It comes to pass. And though God requires of his people, that we strive for holiness, that we strive for righteousness, that we grow in faithfulness and obedience. Yet even so, he uses us as he finds us. God's promise to Abraham was fulfilled in this tribe of children that he gives to Jacob. It's the beginning of the fulfillment. Suddenly, all the things that God said to Abraham seem to be starting to make sense. Your offspring will inherit the land. Well, if you've got 12 tribes, you're going to have a fair few offspring. You're going to have the numbers that you need to inherit the land. God is faithful, even though we are not. And who can boast of their faithfulness? You know, whoever whoever, whoever the strongest, most mature, most sanctified Christian is here today. Even that person has nothing of which to boast. Because if we could work out who that person was, I'm sure that person would say to me, apart from God, I'm nothing. Whatever it is that you see in me, that you consider to be Christ-like, it's there because of the working and the power of God. God fulfills his promises. What else is there to be learned? Well, I've spoken of it a few times, but I'll stress it now. I'll put a little bit more emphasis on it. You don't seek God desperately in the place of contentment. It's just a fact. It's the way we are. The reason that Christians often grow the most in times of desperate need and crisis is because when it's a time of desperate need and crisis, that's when we most desperately, most fervently, most faithfully pray and surrender ourselves to our God. When everything's going well, when everything's fine, when the sun's shining, the job is good, there's money in the bank, etc., 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 well, let's be honest. That's when we are most likely to forget about the goodness of God. That's when we are most likely to fall into the trap of thinking that what we have, we have because we're pretty decent people who work pretty hard, we've made some sensible choices. In other words, aren't I great? Aren't I great? Now, what does God think of that uh, boastful little statement? Aren't I great? Aren't I wonderful? Aren't I good? Does anyone get to boast who is in Christ Jesus? And the answer is no one gets to boast. Full stop. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And our works count for nothing. And if as Christians we do good works, the good works are the fruit of the word that God has planted in us. And we don't get credit for those either. Although God in his grace chooses to reward them. When I say we don't get credit for those, we don't get to claim that those works came from us because we are so good. My friends, it's in times of trouble and desperation. It's when things are going wrong. It's when you're feeling the pain. It's when you're wondering how things ought to be. I mean, you're wondering why things are not the way they ought to be. It's in those times that you call most desperately and faithfully upon God. And it's in those times when finally God grants whatever deliverance he grants It's in those times that you realise that all good things come from God and that apart from God, I'm nothing. Both Leah and Rachel had their desperate needs and they found that the answer to those desperate needs was to turn to the God who had created them. Other things came. It appears that Leah does start to actually get some friendship and affection from her husband, Jacob. After all, after the um, incident where she hires her husband for a night with mandrakes, he comes to her at least twice more. We know that she has another son and then she has a daughter. Who knows? I hope that by the grace of God, Jacob learned to value Leah. And ultimately, when Leah dies, Jacob buries her in the family burial ground in the plot that Abraham had bought. She gets buried there where the, the uh, founders of the faith, so to speak, have been buried. She gets buried in the promised land. Rachel felt that she needed children. Um, you know, con- consider the world we live in. Consider the difference in this attitude towards the attitude of today. Okay, She had everything and she had no child. She had her husband's heart, but she had not given her husband a son or even a daughter. The world keeps telling us that you don't need a family to be happy. You don't need to bring children into the world. The world keeps telling us to maintain ourselves in a state of infertility until we decide that times are good enough for us to want to have a baby. The world keeps telling us maybe you shouldn't have too many children, etc, etc, etc. My friends, children are a blessing from the Lord. Children are a blessing from the Lord. We're supposed to be having children. I'm, I'm, I'm not giving you numbers. I'm not giving you commandments, etc, etc. But I'm saying this that the very work of God in our hearts should make us desire to, to desire to raise up children in his name. When God created them male and female in his image, he made them. The very next thing he said was go out and multiply and fill the earth. I've made you male and female. I've made you fertile. My plan is that you will raise up more images. My plan is that you will give birth to more image bearers of the living God. Rachel wanted to see the purpose for which she was created fulfilled. Am I saying that every woman should therefore be a baby making machine? That's not what I'm trying to say. I hope that's not what you're hearing. What I'm trying to say is in all of these things, consider the purposes for which God made us. Consider the purposes for which God gave us the marriage, the institution of marriage. Consider the goodness of God. If he's drawn a husband and a wife together, he's drawn a husband and a wife together in order that they may raise up children in the kingdom. Full stop. It's not the only reason, it's not the only purpose and it's not the only reason to live. But don't let the world tell you that it's not a legitimate reason. It is. And the world is wrong. It's as simple as that. My friends, Closing thoughts. When things are troubling you, when things beyond your control are troubling you, when you think that things ought to be different to the way they are, you know what? You might well be right. And you must turn to God. You must turn to God. It is God who hears and answers our prayers. God is using every circumstance in our lives as believers to make us more like Jesus and to call us closer to himself. Every circumstance. Our first response in every circumstance, if it's good, we give glory to God. If it's hard, we give glory to God and we pray. Constantly. We fail. Day by day, we fail. You fail, I fail. But just because we fail doesn't mean that that's not what we ought to be. And I'm telling you that even in our failures, God uses and blesses his people. He is faithful. He fulfills his promises. He will do that which he has said he will do. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do indeed thank you and praise you that you are a gracious and faithful God, showing steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. We thank you and praise you, our Father, that In our times of need, we can turn to you in prayer that of all those things which are beyond our control, and there are so many, many things, for we are but people, we are weak, we are, as it were, human. Yet, Father, all of those things we can safely entrust into your hands, knowing that you are good and gracious and merciful and that no one can take us from your hand and knowing that the life that we have in Christ is ours for all eternity. Therefore, our Father, we thank you and we praise you. Help us to go forth with joy in our hearts in, and living in Christian obedience. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.